The following program is a special presentation of the Big Ten Network, produced in association with the University of Iowa. Hi, I'm Keisha Lynn. Welcome to Conversations from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Abraham Verghese is the son of Indian physicist who grew up in Ethiopia, attended medical school in India, and has spent most of the last 30 years practicing medicine. I say most because he took time to get a degree from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Since graduating from the workshop, he has published two books of nonfiction, but he is here today to talk about his latest book, which is a novel, first work of fiction, titled Cutting for Stone. Abraham Verghese, nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Let me just get this out of the way right now. This book, in the inside cover, it says that you are, I'm going to read your title, Abraham Verghese is professor and senior associate chair for the theory and practice of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine. My first question is, when did you find time to write this book? <laughs> well, I was talking to undergraduate students today, and I, I said, if you don't watch television, I hate to say that on a TV yeah, show, <laughs> but if you don't watch television or don't watch a lot of it, it's amazing how much time you have in your day. Uh, but I also told them that I'm a big believer in the incremental method, that if you do something every single day, it's amazing how it stacks up. Oh. And so I, I, on most days I manage to do something. Some days I do a lot more. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think um, that's the secret, is just doing it every day. Doing it every day. Well, this particular book, again, your first work of fiction, it's about, from a, from a very large perspective, it's about twins who grow up to practice medicine in Ethiopia. I'd like you to discuss the medical significance of the title, Cutting for Stone. Sure. So Cutting for Stone is a phrase that uh, is in the Hippocratic Oath or used to be. I think people have taken it out increasingly because it's, it's lost some of its relevance. But I love the phrase. So one of the highlights of my year is commencement, is, is the graduation. And there's a moment when finally all the students stand up and take the oath. And all the physicians in the room are also invited to stand up. So the faculty stand up, the parents, if they're physicians, they stand up. It's a very moving moment. And as we recite the line, there's a phrase there where we say, I will not cut for stone. And the origins of that is there was um, a time period in the medieval era and perhaps even the Victorian era where bladder stones were epidemic. We don't quite know why. The water they drank and God knows what else. But uh, people were in agony from stones that obstructed their bladder. Children would scream and die often from infection. So there were these itinerant stone cutters who would come to town and they were very adept at cutting and taking out the stone. They might do 20 people the same day with one knife without cleaning it. And then they'd leave town because the next day the person would die from infection. And so that prescription, thou shalt not cut for stone, came from, from uh, that fear. I liked the line because it had an antique ring to it. Plus my main character's name is Stone, they're surgeons. So it had many things going for it. The characters, um, Shiva and Marion Stone, are the sons of Dr. Thomas Stone, who, and I was thinking of the literal significance of the title also, Cutting for Stone. Um, it says in the book, I, mean, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but in the flap it talks about how these boys are abandoned by their father, and then they end up growing up to practice medicine in their own way, right. and Marion ends up, Marion is the narrator of the book, and he ends up coming 
that he, he, he runs into and he meets his father again. Right, exactly. So I wanted it to resonate at that level too, that they, they're all surgeons and uh, at some level trying to imitate his father, but consciously thinking he's not, but subconsciously, yes. Um, in some interviews about this book, I saw that you said you wanted to depict medicine in a way that you feel is not really shown and not really made apparent to today's medical students. And I know that you have a lot involved with your work and, and what you've done with your writing in terms of bringing the human nature of medicine back to medical students. But I wanted you to talk about, for the purpose of this book, the type of image of medicine you wanted to describe. Well, you know, I think that medicine is inherently, it's a, it's a romantic, passionate pursuit. It's full of mystery. It's not a science, it's also an art. It's art and science. And I think too often as we describe the heroics of our research and new developments, and you know, there's so many exciting things happening in the research arena, you almost lose the sense of the art being important. And my own sort of calling to medicine, my own desire to become a physician, it came out because of a book, uh, and in my case, the book was Of Human Bondage. But if you talk to physicians of a certain generation, they'll often speak of a book as having brought them to medicine. And the book was Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis in America. It was The Citadel by A.J. Cronin in, in England. And, and I felt that, you know, I really would love to write a book. These are secondary intentions, okay? sure. these are not why I wrote it, but I, my ambition at some level was to write a book that portrays how the house of medicine is huge and there isn't there's room in that house for all kinds of people uh, and it's inherently a wonderful engaging romantic passionate pursuit uh, I wanted to be able to convey that so that was very much an ambition it was very interesting of course these types of books where you go into the detail of medicine and the and the you know, this book is set in Addis Ababa, which is where you grew up, in the 50s and 60s in a hospital that is called Mission, but they call it Missing. It comes out in Ethiopian right. terms, Missing. And describing with what little skills, tools they have and such a small staff, the kinds of things they do. And I was curious to know about, um, I know your, your parents were not doctors, they were physicists, but, you know, when you were writing this book, what types of... I guess I wanted to know how you put memory to work for you when you were trying to recreate the setting of Addis Ababa in the 50s, 60s, and also you know this type of hospital. So the, the novel is not autobiographical in any sense. I'm not a twin. I didn't grow up in a mission hospital. But I certainly wanted to make geography a character. And in doing that, I really called on geography that I know. Uh, so I have a bias that geography is destiny. It seems fairly self-evident. I mean, if you grow up, if you're born in this country, your, your future is quite different than if you grew up, say, you know, um, in India or the Congo. Mm -hmm. That's fairly self-evident. What's even more important is that if you have a change in geography, either you yourself bring it about or someone forces it on you, that changes your destiny even more. So I really wanted to try and capture that sense. But the Mission Hospital was my desire to, as you just said, to portray medicine without all the clutter of specialists and technology. Because when you have medicine in that sort of a sparse uh, setting, it's amazing how the nature of suffering becomes very clear. The fiduciary responsibility of the physician toward the patient cannot be concealed. So all these things sort of stand out in relief. And it was very much a strategy to try and start with that and demonstrate how wonderful but complicated it can become. Right 
when it when it takes on the scientific extreme. Yeah. Uh, how what was going on in Ethiopia? You describe briefly what was happening in, during the 50s and 60s at the time that these boys are growing up. It was a very interesting time because uh, Ethiopia was perhaps the only country never to be colonized by a foreign power, except briefly it was colonized by the Italians, by Mussolini. But when the emperor got his country back in the 50s, he, he uh, implemented this huge scheme to educate his people, built schools and brought in people like my parents to teach. And paradoxically, he also sent a lot of students abroad and he was educating the people who would one day unseat him. So it, it, was a, you know, it was a lovely opportunity for me as a novelist to look at this grand experiment of a very feudal ancient society with a monarch who is a, is a dictator but decides to be very progressive, educates his young people, and in doing so, sows the seeds for his own destruction. So, I mean, I think that's an old story, but nevertheless, I think that's one that I observed carefully in this, in this setting. I'm going to talk about character choices and the choices writers make for characters. Why twins? Anything in particular? You know, I actually didn't begin with twins. I began only with this image of Sister Mary Joseph Praise, sure. a nun, mm -hmm. a beautiful South Indian nun, suddenly giving birth to twins. That was the vision I had. And at first she was just going to give birth to a child, but then I thought, you know, let's make this even more dangerous. Let's make it twins. Yeah. But the, the twins was interesting to me for another reason. I think twins are always interesting to novelists. There's a lot of twin stories, but I wanted them also to be briefly conjoined and then quickly separated because I think there's an issue that's come up in the last couple of years with the ethics of conjoined twins. You know, our instinct is to separate them. But who are we to decide for them that they need to be separated? Who are we to say that their oneness is better off by being a two-ness? And I wanted to play with that a little bit. And as you, as you know from reading the book, eventually that, that two-ness and oneness becomes the redemption of the, of the book. Yeah, that's a good point, because there are several times in the book when the two characters, Shiva and Marian, are described as one, Shiva Marian, right, you know, exactly. and it comes back at the end of the book, you know, Shiva Marian, these, this, this two in one, right, you know, which exactly. was really nice. And, you know, you see these two boys growing up, and, you know, they are twins, but they have their, they go in their separate ways, and there's this woman that comes between them, this woman, Gannett, mm -hmm. and I thought it was an interesting choice to have her there, because she's Eritrean, yeah. so you were able to explore a little bit of that conflict. Yeah. And I like to think that there's no character in the book who I didn't like. So even though Gennett causes a lot of problems, she's not she's not the sort of the villain by any means. You know, I think she's a she's like so many of us, we make some bad choices, we make some flawed decisions. We can look back and say, well, I should have done that. Now who hasn't who hasn't experienced that? So I I I, I found myself intrigued by Gennett. She she was a uh, uh, someone inc increasingly captivating to me, mm -hmm. and I was almost surprised at the level of her, uh, you know, duplicity and her, her, her betrayal at the end. I think she was surprised by it too. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. But then you have these twins, and they're mirror twins, which I thought was also an interesting right. choice. Yeah. Um, the fact that Marion can look in the mirror and basically see yeah. his brother, and he sees him every time he looks in the mirror. And that's fairly common. That's yeah. uh, almost fifty-fifty 
people are mirror twins. That's, know, so. It's fascinating. You had mentioned um, Somerset Mom and some other books, and I've read at least two reviews that talked about your book being compared to, it's comparing it to great 19th century novels. I have an idea about where that's coming from, but can you talk about, was that something you intended when you wrote this, or? I mean, I intended to, my own biases, I think that, uh, some, I know people who say, well, nonfiction is what I read because I want to know the truth. And so fiction is made up, you know, right. what lesson can I extract from that? I think that's a horrible fallacy. I think uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin started a civil war. It was a fiction. Uh, I love the phrase by Dorothy Allison. She says that fiction is the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives. Right. So my notion of a good book, uh, call it 19th century, call it whatever you will, yeah. my, my notion is that you pick up this book, and it's as though you entered a spaceship and you took off to another world. Mm -hmm. You spent 50, 70 years there. You came back and it's Tuesday. Right. <laughs> and yet you're carrying with you all the lessons of that mm -hmm. life lived, you know? I think that's what books are meant to be. They're meant to be instructions for living. They're meant to be, you know, these life experiences you have without giving your life. And so I wanted to write a book like that, something that really mattered, something whose sweep was large enough to extract the lessons of a lifetime. Right. So that I, was the intent. I think that's a great way to describe, because that's what I was thinking from a 19th century perspective. This story, when you think about fiction, one of the you know things about doing these interviews, I've met so many different writers who everybody takes different ways to tell a story, right? And you can have stories with all kinds of literary tricks, and you, know, you play with time, you play with narrative, and all this. And this story, I felt like you basically told this straight through. I mean, you, you go back in time a little bit, but for right. the most part, it's a straight narrative, and it just tells the story of these two boys and the drama that goes through, and it's set against this setting of Addis Ababa, and then he goes to New York, you know, and becomes a, what, what's your, the, I think I read FMG? You're right, foreign, foreign, foreign medical graduate. Foreign medical Indeed. graduate. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you, you cover a lot of ground, and I, I couldn't put it down. I thought it was a lovely um, book, although I did think it was, I have to read this again. This was interesting, quote, that Mark Saltzman said that if Vikram Seth and Oliver Sacks were to collaborate on a four-hour episode of Grey's Anatomy <laughs> set in Africa, they could only come, hope to come up with something this moving and this entertaining, which I thought was kind of funny. That's that that funny. You know, Mark is a funny guy, so that's a, that's a great quote from That me. was a really good quote. I, something else I noticed when I was reading this book, and maybe this speaks to my own reading, but this is the first book I've read in a while that has chapter titles. You know, a lot of books that are, you know, I, I, again, I'm talking about these fancy, yeah, yeah. clever, you know, all the different things you can do with narrative. Just, I thought that was really interesting that you chose to, to do yeah, that. I, I love chapter titles. I love the way they, if they work well, they not only announce what the chapter is about, but you don't quite understand how they're announcing it until you're well into the chapter. Right. There's a moment in there, just like reading a book and realizing, oh, well, that's why the title is such and such. I think it's nice to have that happen with every chapter as well. Absolutely. I thought that was really nice. To see. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, we know that you practice medicine. You practice medicine. You are a teacher in medicine, and you practice for many years. And yet you came to Iowa, and I'd like you to describe a little bit about what brought you to the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Yeah, so I, had lived, I was living through a very intense experience with HIV, in rural Tennessee. I had finished all my infectious disease and internal medicine training and gone back to a new medical school in East Tennessee and taking care of an overwhelming number of HIV patients in rural America, a number that nobody had really anticipated. And, you know, as, as the experience got tougher and tougher, I 
kept writing more and more fiction. I found that this was my release. And also, strangely, <clears throat> by the vehicle of fiction, I couldn't make right in the world those things that I couldn't make right in the daytime. Right. You know, and so my, the, my writing became a very important outlet. And I remember there was a moment in that, in that experience in Tennessee where the hospital administrator pulled me into his office one day and he said, uh, Abraham, do you think we'll see more HIV in our community in the years to come? And I thought, you know, I said, of course, we're going to see more HIV. He said, if you're not here, would we still see more HIV? Oh, wow. And he had a point of sorts in that because I was willing to see patients, they were coming, and they were coming from great distances because they didn't want to be identified in their own communities. But at that moment, I felt, you know, I can do this anywhere. I don't have to do this here. And I also had begun to see that many colleagues had burnt out, and I, and I felt, you know, I want to work with this disease for a lifetime. And if I'm going to do that, I must take breaks. And so I decided I would apply to Iowa. I would send in my two stories and my application. And if Iowa took me, I would go. And, and what I admired about the Iowa process was that it was so egalitarian in that sense. You know, Because on paper, I didn't have but the English degree. I didn't have all the qualifications. I had a couple of good published stories. And, decent literary magazines. I had life experience. And so, you know, when they took me, I came. But I came at great cost. I um, uh, cashed in my retirement and uh, gave up my tenured position at the university, mm -hmm. brought my young family here. If it did one thing for me, it really made me take myself seriously as a writer. Yeah. I could no longer say, well, I have an interest in writing. I mean, I had sacrificed everything to come here. So. It was a huge and decisive moment for me. It was never a retreat from medicine, far from it. In fact, when I came here, I had an opportunity to work as a visiting professor in the HIV clinic once a week, which was huge because it gave me in-state tuition. It, it made me sort of feel still connected to medicine. I hadn't left it. Right. Uh, but I had the luxury of the whole rest of the week to think about my writing and reading because the workshop only met once a week. So it was a glorious time. I, I was thinking driving in today from the airport, you know, I had this such a warm feeling of memory of how this was the place. This is the touchstone for me yeah. when it comes to my writing. This is where it all began for me. Yeah, yeah, it, it's wonderful. I, I'm glad you talked about um, the, the sacrifice you made because it, it explains how a lot of people don't know this, that the Writers Workshop, all kinds of people come all to the Iowa Writers Workshop. I mean, literally, and you don't have to be an English major or anything like that. I wanted to bring up really quickly the, um, an article you wrote, actually it was a lecture you wrote in 2000, titled The Physician is Storyteller, which was a very interesting article about, or rather a lecture, about storytelling techniques and story-making techniques as applied to medicine. And I wanted to ask you about what, what, how, how has writing helped you be a better doctor? And how has being a doctor helped you in, in your writing? Well, to answer the second part first, because that's easy, yeah. I think that the training of medicine, the, the discipline of you know, looking carefully, observing carefully, looking for all these clues and bringing them together, that, that's a lovely training for anything, but especially for writing. So I remember hearing Frank Conroy here, and also my professors in medical school use the same phrase, God is in the details. God is in the details, yes. You know, and uh, <laughs> I thought, boy, boy, that's amazing, this, you know, two, pe two pedagogues using the same phrase in different disciplines. Um, so I think that it's easy to say that Medicine is good training to be a physician, uh, to be a writer. 
you, you certainly see a lot, you have life experience, and you've got the skills to put it all together. But it's not a given. You still have a lot of work ahead of you. The converse has become very interesting to me, and that is that I think that there's a lot that we physicians can learn from writers that can help us be better physicians. And when I talk about this, I, I often talk about how so much of medicine is about story. I mean, what is the history but a story? Right. And, you know, so much of story is about trying to take the details you're hearing and find an arc, mm -hmm. and especially to find an epiphany, find an ending that's suitable. And I, I often find myself drawn to the very patient situations where my house staff are uncomfortable because it appears that we've exhausted all the medical issues and there's no more we can do medically. Uh, and I often think, well, that, that's the beginning of everything we can do as physicians. You know, uh, it's the moment we can help the family and the patient come to terms with this illness. It's the moment we can assure them that we will be there with you through the end. You know, I'll see you through this. And, and I think so, helping me help the residents get away from the pure scientific approach of, you know, well, if I can't do anything more, then there's nothing more for me to do. Uh, that's been a very very much something I learned from being a storyteller. That's wonderful. Really great. I wish we had more time to talk. Abraham Verghese, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for having coming. me. This is Abraham Verghese's new book, first book of fiction titled Cutting for Stone. This has been Conversations from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Thank you for joining us. The preceding program was produced by the University of Iowa in association with the Big Ten Network.